Exodus chapter 20. Um, For those of you who don't know where that is, we're going to be in verse 15 today. Give you a second to turn there. And a heads up is that as with all the Ten Commandments, we are we're taking a look throughout the Bible of how uh, how the commandments are applied and and what what uh, what it means to keep the Ten Commandments. But uh, I wanted to say first what the Ten Commandments are not. Okay, because there can be some confusion here. The Ten Commandments are not ten things we do to make God love us and let us into heaven. Our performance does not earn salvation. Okay? Jesus does that on the cross and in his resurrection. The Ten Commandments are God's guidance in how to live a life of love. You see these, you know, be a loving person, be a good person. How do you do that? The answer is follow God's guidance. And so you're going to see that our text is super simple. Exodus 20:15 simply says, do not steal. Like a lot of the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, it's two words. No steal. <laughs> uh, but we're going to see that it is much, much deeper than simply not taking someone's property. Let's pray before we begin. God, I pray that you would speak through your word to us now. That, uh, that our minds and hearts would be open, that when we are convicted, we would not resist, but allow your word to break up the rocks that are our heart, that the gospel and a fruitful human life would be planted there, that we can more resemble your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all hear me okay? Up a little? Okay, give me a sec. I'm running sound by myself again. Amanda does so much. Is that better? Oh, no feedback. Okay, we good now? Thanks, buddy. You sound beautiful too. How about Marcel giving it a giving it a go with uh, on oxygen? Next time you need a dictionary definition for guts, there you go. Um, you know, sometimes a uh, a truly great writer will create a story or a character that so captures a theme or a concept that you automatically associate one with the other. For instance, when I say Scrooge, we all know that Scrooge means greed, right? And if I, I am going to read Dickens to you right now, which is super self-indulgent. I'm a nerd. It's okay. You'll all, you'll all be enriched culturally. And this, this is how he... This is how he describes Scrooge on the first page of the book. He says, oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge, No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. 
Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? Will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was a clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts. It's amazing, right? Now, when we think of Scrooge, right, we've, if we haven't read the book, we've seen one of the movies. It, it, why is Scrooge greedy? Why does he hoard his money? Is it because he loves money? No, the description of him here is that he loves what? Nothing. No one. Not even himself. And his money follows his love. Jesus once said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Another way to put that is your wallet is your heart. Think about what money is. Think about what it does. It allows us to obtain the thing that we desire and love, right? Oh, I want that skateboard. Probably none of us want to break our shins, but pretend you wanted a skateboard. I want that skateboard. How do you get it? Money. You want status. How do you get it? Money. You love, uh, you know, vacation and pleasure and whatever. How do you get it? Money, right? Your wallet is your heart. If we, like all of us say we love certain things, but if you really want to see what you love, look at where you spend your money. That's where your love is actually pointed. Your wallet is your heart. When I look at where my money goes, I could say I'm all about this and that. My bank account tells a different story. I'm going to be honest with you, right? I really love burritos, it turns out. <laughs> I always find the money when it comes to buying myself a burrito. Yeah, I know. I'm getting some nods out there. It's like, oh, yeah, nothing that you said made sense until now. <laughs> But I have to be honest, it tells a story of a greedy man who finds it difficult to love the things of God, who finds it difficult to be generous and very easy to get things for myself. For most of us, the reason we're greedy, the reason we hoard money, the reason we have trouble being generous isn't because we lack money, it's because we lack love. Your wallet is your heart. And when our greed becomes extreme, we go all the way to violating the, the law of God. That's why it says, do not steal. That's an extreme uh, example of greed. I'm going so far in getting what I want that I'm, I'm going to use someone else's money for this, right? But we're going to see that you may, what the Bible says is stealing may not be what you envision. Now, when we are thinking about the Ten Commandments, we're thinking about them like a dartboard. I don't play darts. Some of you might be aces, which is great. But uh, when, we, when we play darts, we aim for the middle. That's a pretty generous bullseye, I realize. Uh, a real bullseye is much smaller. But, uh, you know, the, we're aiming for the middle. If we end up on the board, we're like, that's close to where I was aiming. But if you hit the wall, that is out of bounds. The, the law of God works the same way. 
So when, when the Bible says do not commit murder, that's telling you where the wall is on valuing human life. It's like, oh, I haven't killed anybody. It doesn't mean you're valuing human life and helping people flourish, right? It just means at least don't do this. At least don't be on the wall. And the same is, 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 the same is true here in the, in, the, uh, in the Eighth Commandment of do not steal. Now, the reason for not stealing, remember, all of our responses are based on God's grace. Do we remember the, how the Ten Commandments start? It starts with, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery, out, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All of this is based in what God has done for his people. Can we think, like, we aren't ancient Israelites, but have we experienced a redemption from God? Has God been generous to us? Yes, he gave himself. He gave his son to die on the cross for us, right? Not only that, but think of this. Everything you own, all of your resources, everything that gives you joy and delight in this world comes right from the hand of God. Dancing, thank God for that one. Mountains, thank God for that one. Burritos from Chipotle. I gotta say, they, they, that ultimately comes from God's creation, right? And so God has been incredibly generous with us, and that is why the commandment comes, do not steal. It's completely inappropriate for a people who have received the generosity of God. Now, what does it mean not to steal? Okay, what is it to break the eighth commandment? Well, first of all, there's taking property, what you think of. There's a wallet on the seat of a car. Smash the window, take the wallet. That is certainly stealing. Here's what you might find interesting. There is not one example of that in the Bible where God gets upset. You know, it's Methuselah, you stole a cloak. Curses, right? Woe to you for stealing a cloak. Do you know where we see God's wrath? God get upset about the breach of the Eighth Commandment? It's... it's it's towards the powerful and rich. Look with me at Isaiah 1.23. It says this, Your princes, prince, the Hebrew word for prince can just mean ruler, just mean a noble or someone in charge of something. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Guys, the companion of a thief is a thief. That's right. Who's getting called a thief? The princes. Why? Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So is it the petty theft who, who, God, has a, who God has a mind for, you know, being held accountable with the Eighth Commandment? Well, biblical precedent says, no, it's the powerful and it's the wealthy. Now, what were they doing that was considered stealing? Were they just taking, they were going after widows and saying like, hey, run the jewels, you know, give me that. No, what they were doing, you're going to have to listen for a bit here, was one of Israel's great sins. There was two great sins in Israel that resulted in the exile. One was that they worshipped idols. The second was how they oppressed the poor. You see, in Israel, every family had a land inheritance. Everybody got farmland so they could support themselves. Okay? Now, it was in the law that if you had bad crops for a few years and you were in danger of starving, you could temporarily sell your land and sell your labor 
but at a certain year, it would revert to your family so that you wouldn't be forever poor. Okay, here's what started happening. The rich started buying up this land when they were desperate and not returning it in the year of Jubilee. And they, they made these mega estates so that there was a few with tons of land and way more than they needed and many without anything. That is what God really gets upset about with regards to the Eighth Commandment. Look with me at Isaiah 5.8. Now the texts on this are so numerous in the prophets, I'm only playing you a couple of the greatest hits. Isaiah 5.8 says this. Woe! It's not good. No, that, that, that's not a good sign if it starts with woe. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. So what are they doing? They're buying land from the desperate poor to their advantage. Okay? Micah 2.2 2 says this, They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now, are they simply taking it from them? No, they're paying for it. But what God is upset about here is the fact that they're doing what's called leveraging desperation. You wait for someone to be desperate and you take advantage of that desperation. We might call it good business. The Bible calls it stealing. Okay? But not only buying land from the desperate, but negotiating for the labor of the desperate uh, in a way that, that is to their disadvantage. Amos 8, 4 through 6 says this, Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the FF small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances? Listen, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So they're going to sell them chaff. Why? They have no other choice. They're going to buy their labor for a pair of sandals. Undervalued. Why? Because they have no other choice. That is leveraging desperation. And that is the vast majority of texts that deal with the breach of the Eighth Commandment in the Bible. And so this might sound strange to some of us because we're like, but isn't that like our entire economy functions like that? Right? Like you ever heard the name J.D. Rockefeller, Rockefeller Center, all that? You know how he got his name on those buildings? You think, Jenny, you know this story? Give me a little covert. Okay. J.D. Rockefeller started out as a small-time oil guy in the Ohio Valley. And he had a knack for driving business, driving competition out of business. Here's how he did it. He made a secret deal uh, with the railroad company because when you're an oil person, you know, you needed to ship barrels on the railroad. This was key. He made a secret and illegal deal that his barrels would ship for less than his competitors. He would undercut his competitors. They would become desperate. He would actually send in corporate spies to find out how desperate they were. And when they were about to lose everything, he would swoop in and say, hey, you guys are about to go out of business. I know it. How, but you have pipelines, you have oil, you have trucks, you have all this infrastructure. How about I give you 30 cents on the dollar? And they would do it because their other choice was lose everything. That, again and again and again, 
is how he became the sole owner of all oil production in the United States. We celebrate the dude. What did he do? He leveraged desperation. That the scriptures would call stealing. And so, is it wrong to take property? Absolutely. But what is the much bigger issue? It is the leveraging of desperation. We see around here, like in the neighborhood I live in, I am getting calls on the daily of of people trying to buy the property out from under me because they will find people who are in debt and they offer them 50% of what their house is worth. That's leveraging desperation. You see these payday loan shops. They, They take someone who is who needs money, who needs an advance, and they charge them 200% compound interest that is leveraging desperation. We see the way that often, especially the undocumented, are exploited because they don't have the same legal protections as, a, as, a, as someone who has status. They are often unpaid or underpaid or forced to work in dangerous conditions. No Christian can in good conscience be part of that. Even the whole race to the bottom for global wages that we all benefit from, we have to ask ourselves, right? Like it's not just, it's not just the employer who's leveraging desperation, but it's us as consumers. We all buy lots of stuff. We have to ask, is what I'm buying the result of leveraged desperation? I'm gonna ruin everyone's day. Many of the clothes we wear, and not, 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 not just the cheap ones, but a lot of the most expensive ones. I found out some of my favorite stuff is made from near-slave labor. Chocolate. You ever wonder when you look at the shelf and it's like $4 snowflake chocolate or Hershey's for 50 cents? I'm going with Hershey's. You know why? It's because they buy beans from a, from a cocoa bean exchange that uses slave labor from Court d'Ivoire and Mali. No kidding. We're, we're talking about unpaid, kidnapped, can't leave slave labor. And they pass that savings on to you. Yummy. Now, you may be saying to yourself, oh, you're just one of these woke liberal people. Whatever. Call me any names you feel like. Please, I am all ears. Do the moral calculus for me. As the people of God, whose God has been generous with us, who don't need to buy all the things we buy most of the time, who could totally afford to buy products only from companies that pay living wages to people, how, do the moral calculus. I'll, get out, I'll take notes. Break it down for me. Show me from the word of God how that's okay. And yes, that means we need to change our buying habits. Why? Because God will hate us otherwise? No. It's because God's been generous with us. Everything you have, including Christ on the cross and eternal life is from God. How could we turn around to our fellow man and say, I'm good with you getting a starvation wage if it means I get, the, get a top that, you know, is flattering. <laughs> okay, so that's hitting the wall. What is it to get on the board? It is to give what is required. Give what is required. Give it to who? Well, we're going to see, first of all, it's to give it to God. Malachi 3, 6 through 10 says this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. 
Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you were robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So giving what is required is, first of all, giving it to God. And second, we must give what is required to the poor. Exodus 23.11 says this, But the seventh year you shall let the land rest and lie fallow, meaning don't plant on it, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So the way it would work is on your land, you'd have different fields. You're supposed to rotate them out, not only to give the land rest, but so that that would be available for the poor who are dispossessed of their land to grow their food. So it's, an, it's not an if you feel like it and want to be a green beret, give to the poor. It's, it's an obligation, right? It's not someone else's problem. It's our problem as God's people. And I want to go ahead and say, it's really hard for us to give what is required. I, I'm not pretending this is easy. Some of us are like, oh, I feel guilty right now. The grace of Christ still applies. We're just being called out of our hard-heartedness. We're being called out of our loving ourselves and towards loving the things of God, right? And so if we're feeling convicted, we take steps towards freedom. And that's hard sometimes. There's this old... There's this old, in high school, I loved cheesy horror movies. And one of my very favorites was a movie called Evil Dead 2. Anyone? Yes! Many people know Evil Dead 2. Don't watch it. Don't say I said I saw it. <laughs> but it's really low budget. And so Bruce Campbell, who's like the best, he, he's the star. He goes up. I don't have a graphic for it if you're hoping. Um, <laughs> he goes up to like a cabin in the woods and finds the, this evil demon spell book and reads something he wakes up some demon and you know they didn't have cgi so it's like his hand gets possessed that's as low budget as you can get what's the villain what's the monster your hand it's like okay and the hand is like trying to choke him and punch him and kill him throughout the movie and he finally has to cut it off with a chainsaw anyway so that actually happened to me once <laughs> where my hand was possessed it was uh, the first time that I was signing up for automatic giving to church. And I had filled out all the information, and I was about to hit the submit button, and a demon took hold of my hand, and I could not push it. I was like, come on, what's going on? The power of Christ compels thee, right? And, <laughs> and, and it was a real struggle for me to begin to give what is required. I, like everyone else, struggle with the sin of my age, of greed. This is a tough one for us, right? It, it's not like, hey, you're given the bare minimum. In our culture, it's something to be celebrated when we start doing what's required. D did you know that Colorado is in the top third of wealthy states? Top, top third out of the, out of the 50 nifty, okay? Denver is the top of Colorado along with Boulder, okay? Do you know where we fall in charitable giving in the United States? 
Colorado falls in the bottom quarter. We're looking up at Tennessee and Arkansas and these places with far less money, and Denver is at the bottom of Colorado. What does that tell you? It tells you that the ability to be generous has nothing to do with how much money you have. It has to do with what you love. Okay? Now, when, when they study who gives what charitably, the wealthy do give the most, okay, in terms of absolute numbers and percentage of income. And I've known some of those folks, right? It's, it's, it's cool. Do you know who's number two? The poor. The working poor give more absolute dollars and a larger part of their income than the middle class. We're bottom of the barrel, those of us who are middle class. It has nothing to do with how much money you have. It has, it has to do with what you love. What is going to let us let go of this sin of greed it is the generosity of Christ. When we truly see and understand how generous our God has been, has been with us, he's going to set us free from this sin of greed. And yes, there might need to be some practical steps that go along with it. Giving what is required is giving when you don't feel like it, Right? Like, a, like signing up for auto gifts <laughs> or, or, or saying, hey, I'm just in a moment of clarity. I'm going to decide to support this ministry out here. And by the way, this is not a plea for you to support grace and peace. If, if we all gave 10% and nobody gave to grace and peace, well, we'd cease to exist. But besides that, I'd be over the moon that we have discipled people well enough to where we all gave 10% to something. Okay? God has been generous with us. So let's first of all, not steal. Second, give what is required. And what's the bullseye? Like, none of us are aiming for the board, although with this particular commandment, we might. <laughs> You're like, yes, the edge of the board. Woo, I'm the best. But the bullseye is to give like God. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is John 3:16. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. Can you do better than that? I can't do better than that. That's as generous as it gets. God's giving follows God's love. He loved this world that was rebelling against him, and he gives his only son. And so, what does it look for us to give like God? First of all, from a generous heart. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7 says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Like, wouldn't that be great if you were excited to give? Like, um, sometimes, when, like, I'm from a, my, my mom's Italian, so I grew up with a lot of Italian cooking, and my son-in-law, I'll be cooking together. He's like, Dad, how much garlic do I put in here? I was like, son, don't ask that question. Open your heart and let the garlic just, you know, just, just cook from your soul with garlic. Yeah. And, and wouldn't that be great if we could just open up our heart and generosity poured out? I realize that's an aspiration. But wouldn't it be amazing if God worked so, so deeply in us that we were like, oh, I found a way to adjust my budget that I could give more. Not to myself, but for something for the kingdom or to the poor. And, and we were happy about it, like excited, like as if we just got the perfect pair of jeans, you know? And also, we give to bless others. Acts 4.32 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 
And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This, this early community of Christ was so moved by the gospel that the way they lived was with concern for the needs of everyone. And no, that's not communism because the government didn't do it. They did it on their own. Hit the brakes, pinkos. <laughs> Kidding, it's not an insult, right? My wife is super into that, but not really. Don't send me bad emails. But what does it look like to give like God from a, from a generous heart and to bless others? Well, in 1974, there was a, there was a huge famine in the nation of Bangladesh. And, um, and really, there was a guy named Muhammad Yunus who was from Bangladesh, but uh, was educated in the West in, in economics. And he, he tried to figure out what was going on. Why couldn't the economy in Bangladesh begin to develop, especially in the countryside? And he figured out what was happening. There was a lack of startup capital. The Bangladeshi people he knew were hardworking, honest people, but they didn't have the capital to get going. And so um, he took a look at, at what banks were doing. Like, well, well, how do you get capital? It's from a bank. And they were giving loans only to men, only to the rich, and in huge quantities in the city. He says, well, that doesn't make a ton of sense. So let's try the exact opposite. Let's give small loans only to women, uh, only in the countryside. Okay. And, and they, he started with a group of 40 women who wanted to start small businesses and $27. Not $27 per woman, $27 for all of them. And they would each take money out of the $27 pot, start a basket weaving, scarf making, soap making, candle, or the rest of it, small business. They all paid it back with interest. And they started what's called Grameen Bank. Today, Grameen Bank has millions of members doing microfinance for small businesses for people, and it's lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty. Now, we might be really impressed by the dollar figure that Jeff Bezos has. I, I recently heard that, that the top four Americans have more wealth than the bottom 50%. You didn't hear me say top 4%, I said the top four. The top four richest people in this country have more than the bottom 50 combined. It's impressive. Does that inspire anybody? Does that, does that, you want to get like that? Right? Does that like make your heart sing that Bezos took a rock, rocket to outer space? No, probably not. Right? But when I tell you the story of Muhammad Yunus, who had far less and did far more, you're like, what's possible? Well, what's possible for Denver? What's possible for my neighborhood? What's possible for Colorado? Is, can I give like that? Can I give like God? From a generous heart and so that people benefit and flourish? There are some really cool examples of this. For instance, there's a number of businesses, Chipotle included. I'm dropping a lot of Chipotle references today. I didn't mean to. It's on my mind. I am hungry. Uh, but they actually will pay college tuitions for their employees who commit to stay for four years. Right? It's good business on their part, and it's also a huge blessing for, for the people who are working their way through college. Uh, there, I've known many wealthy people, highly wealthy people, who give away almost all of what they make to 
church planting to college ministry to relief efforts and the rest, right? That person is giving like God. We should praise God for that. But in our, for the people listening to me right now, probably not too many of you are, are, uh, are balling that hard, but a lot of you have chosen vocations uh, that make far less than what you could be doing so that you can be part of giving like God, right? You're in education, you're in development, you're in government, you're in all these places that pay far less and you could make more with your degree and your brain and your ability, but you choose to make less so that others can benefit and you do so with, you do that like with your whole life. That is beginning to be in the bullseye. That's the life that God is calling us to. God has been generous with us. We are all, we are all under, we're all shackled with the sin of greed, every last one of us. And God calls us to greater freedom and walking in love. And the way that we get there is not slamming you with the guilt hammer. It's instead by going deeper and deeper into the amazing grace we have in Jesus Christ. You know, that's what happens at the end of Christmas Carol to Scrooge. Did you realize that? We all kind of know the story, but at the end of, of uh, Christmas Carol, the, the ghost of Christmas future takes Scrooge to like this little shack where these, there's these guys going through all these possessions, right? And talking about this funeral that they had done earlier and how sad it was. No one was there at all. He was, and, and, and Scrooge is like, who are they talking about? What poor schlep is this? And, and, and the Grim Reaper, well, the ghost of Christmas future, who happens to look exactly like the Grim Reaper on purpose, takes him out to the graveyard, and by the light of the lantern, Scrooge reads his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge, on the gravestone. And then death does what? Pushes him down into the grave. You see, he dies, and then he wakes up the next morning. He's born again on Christmas, you see? And what happens? He's transformed. He gets up like he's, he's saying, I have another chance. And this is what he says. He says, I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath and making a perfect lacoon of himself with his stockings. I'm light as a feather. I'm happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. And he goes out, he throws a feast for the community. He gives Bob Cratchit a raise, right? His, his heart's alive now. He's a transformed man and his money follows his heart. Scrooge on the last page is born again and becomes generous. Right now, I'm worried that my wallet tells the story of my heart that looks more like Scrooge on the first page than the last. You and I, we all need the grace of God. 